This is Georgia Today. I'm Virginia Prescott. Jimmy Carter left the White House a one-term president. He was battered by foreign policy catastrophes, a domestic economy in shambles, and rock-bottom approval ratings. In the 40 years since, the man from Plains, Georgia, has become a global humanitarian and Nobel Prize winner. The story usually goes about President Carter. Well, he's a nice guy and a good person, great ex-president, but he's a failed president who was never really able to rise to the challenges of his time. That's what you hear. That's the story we've been told. But it's all wrong. That was Walter Mondale, Carter's vice president, who died last week. Among those telling a different story are Will and Jim Pattis, the Georgia-born brothers and filmmakers behind the new documentary, Carterland. The film is the latest to cast Carter's legacy in a different light as a far-sighted, even revolutionary president. Well, hello, Pattis brothers. Hey, Hey, thanks for having us. Now, you both grew up in Georgia. What did you know growing up about Jimmy Carter? So growing up in Georgia, we were kind of not told too much about President Carter. We kind of had this basic understanding that he was a phenomenal human being. The We had heard this phrase, the greatest ex-president ever. But about his presidency, you don't hear too much. We didn't hear too much anyways. And what we did hear were not positive things about him. And so that was one of the things that really drove us to making this film was saying, you know, this is a really a story that hasn't been told before. And as we got to researching it, we said, holy cow, there is so much here. Um, We're excited to kind of share the real story. Well, let's talk about that real story. Uh, He gets elected. This was in the wave of post-Watergate elections. He's not a politician. He's been in state, state senate here in Georgia and, of course, governor of Georgia. But sounds like there's a lot that he didn't really get about Washington. One of the interesting themes of the film that we cover is this idea of an outsider. He comes in, and one of the problems he immediately faces is he brings in a total outside crew. And in Washington, folks are used to, you know, you kind of, quote-unquote, playing ball. He doesn't do that. He didn't, you know, President Carter really didn't do a lot of the greasing of the hands. He didn't like this transactional politics. I'm going to do this thing for you because you will do this thing for me. He brings a very different attitude, which is, I'm going to do this thing because it is right. And that ruffled a lot of people's feathers. Carter was one of those people who, when he said, I'm going to do the right thing, not the political thing, was telling the truth. That's rare. That's hard for other people to imitate. Uh, And it cost him at the time. But as we look back on it, it looks more and more admirable. So what are some examples of uh, Jimmy Carter doing the right thing, despite what sounds like a high political cost? Well, this this really becomes a theme in his presidency and, and in our film. We spoke with uh, his son, Chip Carter, when we were making the film, and he talks about how, uh, and Jason Carter, his his grandson as well, they talk about how Rosalind Carter was really the best politician in the family, um, hands down. And she advised him, you know, she was his closest advisor. And she told him, you know, uh, one of the things was the Panama Canal. She said, you know, that really should wait to the second term. You know, my mother would be 
a lot more leery of taking on the controversial issues than my father, because my mother was looking toward the next election. And my father was looking toward the next day and, and what he could do to make our country better. But President Carter just felt like, if I can do it now, it needs to get done. And we're talking about negotiating a treaty to hand over the Panama Canal, you know, back to the Panamanians, um, which was a really politically fraught issue here at home. But in Panama, the situation on the ground was, you know, it was it was looking like it was going to break out into full scale war there if, if something wasn't done. And so Carter really takes on the politically unpopular issue of transferring what was then American property to uh, Panama, returning it to the Panamanians. And obviously it was uh, it was a great decision. And, and Carter talks about, you know, when when he gets this he incredibly heavy lift done in, in Congress and he gets this thing signed, passes it by two votes in the Senate. And he says that, you know, this treaty demonstrates the kind of great power the United States wants to be treating our our neighbors with fairness and not force. Obviously, after President Carter, you see a lot of presidents who don't necessarily um, take that approach with their foreign policies. So that was it, Carter paid a heavy price for the Panama Canal. I think he lost 20 percent on his approval ratings. And of course, Ronald Reagan was out there building his political career off of taking the opposite view. So that was a big one for Carter. Although the Panama Canal treaties was a misunderstood move that our government made, it was not politically popular. I don't have any doubt that I lost a lot of political support on account of it, but it was right. And I would rather be right in a case like that when I'm sure it's for the best interest of our country, even if it does cost me something politically. His faith, his belief in human rights and his environmentalism all contain a moral imperative. They all are connected to a deep sense of morality that suffuses his attitude toward life. What does that sense of moral leadership bring to his quality as a president? What, is, what does he get done? I think the, the question of morality for Carter, that, that is central to who Carter is. And it overrides everything else um, that, that he does. Uh, Douglas Brinkley, the historian, he talks about how one of the things with Carter is, is that he really has no greed. And that can be a problem in American politics. He was not going to compromise his morals um, on an issue that was that was important. And we see that throughout his presidency, whether it's, you know, in the wake of the Love Canal disaster, um, he goes and, and enacts, you know, the Superfund bill, you know, Alaska lands. If Carter doesn't step in and use executive action and really lead on that issue, Alaska would be a very, very different looking place today. I've seen firsthand some of the splendors of Alaska, but many Americans have not. Now, whenever they or their children or their grandchildren choose to visit Alaska, they'll have the opportunity to see much of its splendid beauty undiminished and its majesty untarnished. Okay, so through using this executive action, the Antiquities Act, he protects 150 million acres in Alaska and eventually doubles the size of national parks. 
Where else do you see him as visionary on the environment? This first actual speech that he gives to the American public is done in a totally different style than what you see with most politicians. You have to go back to President Franklin Roosevelt to get a very familiar reference point. And it is him sitting in front of the fireplace wearing this cardigan sweater. And he says, I want to talk to you tonight about energy and energy conservation specifically. And you see this very calm, demeanored man who looks like he could be your dad or, you know, somebody who's talking to you in a very familiar sense. And he talks to the American public about this idea of energy conservation. I ask you to drive 15 miles a week, fuel, than you do now. At least once a week, take the bus, go by carpool, or if you work close enough to home, walk. An interesting story that Vice President Mondale told us when we were interviewing him was about how Carter walked the walk. So he gave this speech on lowering thermostats. And so in the summer, you know, he told us how uh, in the, even in the cabinet room, he did the same thing that he told everybody in their homes to do. And he said you'd come in into the cabinet room. And it was 90 degrees in there, hot and muggy. You know, you'd take off everything you dare take off without being arrested and try to make it through the day. And if you can imagine the president of the United States, the vice president, and his cabinet having sweaty cabinet meetings. Um, and it's, you know, for Americans, we're used to taking, you know, we're used to not really saving. We turn on the lights, we leave a room, it's fine, whatever. Americans, I think, are a little bit wasteful in um, our everyday actions. And what President Carter is saying is, right now we're in a bit of an energy crisis and we need to save. So if you can, turn out the lights, lower your thermostats, um, do what you can to conserve. And that was really only the beginning for him. From that platform, he goes on to really try to tackle our energy problems for the future as well. He's the first president who puts solar panels on the roof of the White House and does this in the 1970s, which is really just, when you think about it, it's crazy. He was pushing this idea of a new energy future, as um, Governor Jay Inslee puts it in the film. And when you look back at it, you say to yourself, my gosh, what happened? Jason Carter has this great line. He talks about his grandfather was really the first millennial president. That really struck us because he's right. I mean, you look at the issues that Carter is out in front on in the 1970s, and they're issues that we're only just now confronting today. Jim's talking about racial equality, social justice, climate change, energy, renewable energy, all these things, you know, even uh, ethics in government, all these things that are coming into the focus now that he was doing in the 70s. The only way to overcome unequal history is to promote and defend and enforce the equal opportunity for all disadvantaged Americans in this land. It's not enough to have a right to sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a meal. And a ghetto looks the same even when you're sitting in the front end of a bus. So why didn't President Jimmy Carter get reelected? Stay with us for more Georgia Today. I'm Virginia Prescott.
It's Georgia Today. I'm Virginia Prescott. For years now, Jimmy Carter has largely been thought of as a failed president, but a noble ex-president. Critics consider him weak on the Iran hostage crisis, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and not quite up to the task of taking on runaway inflation. His legislative record tells another story. The new film Carterland by Will and Jim Pattis presents a visionary president with far-sighted policies on the environment, diversity, ethics, human rights, and other issues we are still wrestling with today. But in the film, Princeton University historian Meg Jacobs says Carter struggled to ignite the passions of voters. A good leader is hard to define. A good leader, my first instinct was to say, the one who can turn out the votes, because you really can't be a leader unless you're in office. And so uh, you have to inspire people to want to support you and make them believe that you have better solutions than the other guy. And that was a challenge for Jimmy Carter. Well, you paint a picture of a thoughtful, highly intelligent, almost prescient president. Why has Jimmy Carter gotten such a bad rap? I think that's a that's a really good question. Um, you know, there are a lot of answers to that. I think one of the most obvious ones to us, at least, was when, um, you know, Carter loses reelection and Ronald Reagan, you know, we have a, a pretty long succession there of Republican presidents. And Will and I feel like Carter's story was really being told by um, his successors who, who came from the opposite party and and really when Carter loses re-election in 1980, it's a clash of ideals. Carter wants to take the country in one direction, and Reagan wants to take it in another direction. And Carter kind of outlines this in his uh, malaise speech, if, if you will, which he never used the word. We like to call it the crisis of confidence speech. There are two paths to choose. One is a path I've warned about tonight, the path that leads to fragmentation and self-interest. Down that road lies a mistaken idea of freedom, the right to grasp for ourselves some advantage over others. All the traditions of our past, all the lessons of our heritage, all the promises of our future point to another path, the path of common purpose and the restoration of American values. But he kind of outlines those two paths, and so I think um, when when you had, you know, the other path gets chosen, um, they got to write President Carter's history. The latest ABC News Lewis Harris poll shows that Mr. Carter has now hit not merely a new, but an all-time low in popular support. The president's return home to deal with the nation's troubles brings him face-to-face with his own problem, an unprecedented downturn of public opinion. According to our latest ABC News Harris poll, the American people are giving him their lowest marks ever for the overall job he is doing. The rating, 73% negative, 25% positive, makes him the worst regarded president in modern political history. Obviously, the wisdom of Jimmy Carter aside, people weren't willing to support him. Why couldn't Jimmy Carter get people to buy into his vision? Jonathan Alter kind of um, tackles this in in the film as well. He says President Carter was putting out all these incredible visionary things, and yet when he turned around, he realized that nobody was following him. And it's a kind of a sad assessment of what was happening. But uh, one of his flaws potentially is that he took on so much. And he wasn't a great cheerleader for his own actions. And so now, you know, I think one of the results of the Carter presidency, a lesson 
is that you do have to be your own cheerleader. You do need to go on TV regularly and say, look at this that I have done. Um, I, I am being successful. See, look at this big policy thing that I achieved. President Carter was really more about the results side of politics. He was a policy wonk and he really wanted to get things done. I think it is um, Phil Weiss, who is now um, the vice president at the Carter Center in the film. He says that uh, after the Panama Canal Treaty is signed, and this it's this major legislative achievement that nobody thought could happen. You know, they celebrated in the West Wing of the White House for about five minutes, and then they got right back to work because that's just kind of the guy that he was. And so if people don't know all the amazing things that you're doing, then that's a real problem politically. One of the points that I think it's Jonathan Alter, who wrote a terrific biography on Carter's years in the White House, he said, you know, Americans, they don't want to sacrifice. Carter was really the last American president who asked for sacrifice, because that's, that's a political loser. People don't really want to sacrifice. So in some ways, you know, this is the president, he's the eat your spinach president, <laughs> you know, he, he, he's asking about big questions of meaning in the future. W was Jimmy Carter just too deep for America? Was, was he too forward thinking? It's a very good question. You know, I calls to mind um, when Carter was president, you know, he was getting lampooned on Saturday Night Live for that very thing, because Carter was an engineer, and he was. He was very forward-looking, very deep-thinking, not only spiritually, but but um, in tackling real problems. And uh, Saturday Night Live, of course, famously does this caricature of him when he does the call-in show with Walter Cronkite, um, and he has Americans calling in, and, and he has answers for all of their problems, including, you know, odd tax forms and things like that. He knows everything. And now, live from the White House, ask President Carter. Mrs. Arbarth, do you have a question for the president? Yes, sir. I'm an employee of the U.S. Postal Service in Kansas. Mm -hmm. Last year, they installed an automated letter sorting system called the Marvex 3000 here in our branch. Yes. But the system doesn't work too good. Letters keep getting clogged in the first level sorting grid. Is there anything that can be done about this? Well, Mrs. Uh, Horbath, Vice President Mondale and myself were just talking about the Marvex uh, 3000 this morning, as a matter of fact. Um, I do have a suggestion. You know the caliper post on the first grid sliding armature? Yes. Okay, there's a three-digit setting there where the post and the armature meet. Now, when the system was installed, the angle of cross-slide was put at a maximum setting of one. If you reset it at the three mark, like it says in the assembly instructions, I think you'll solve any clogging problems uh, in the machine. Oh, thanks, Mr. President. By the way, I think okay. you're doing and he, he gets made fun of for that. But you wonder, uh, should we have listened to this guy? Shouldn't we value somebody who, who has that kind of um, foresight, that kind of intelligence, and wants to ask more of us? And, and I think that's one of the real questions our documentary kind of challenges viewers to think about is, what do we really want out of a leader? Do we want a leader who's going to challenge us to be better versions of ourselves? Or do we want a leader who's going to ask nothing of us and is going to tell us that, you know, happy days are here? And that's that's a real question for Americans as they go to the polls. My thanks to Will and Jim Pattis, co-directors and producers of Carterland. The film premieres at the Atlanta Film Festival on Saturday, May 1st. 
You can watch a trailer from Carterland and get more on Georgia Today at gpb.org. Georgia Today is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you get podcasts, and please do leave us a rating or review on Apple. Jess Mador is our producer. Our engineers are Jesse Nicewanger and Jahi Whitehead. Steve Hennessy will be here with a new episode on Friday. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for listening.